We're at a portion or a time in David's life here as we're going through the life of David uh, that to me is very exciting. Uh, Saul is now dead, and so that means that David is ready to assume some form of leadership in Israel. And we know that Samuel the prophet, uh, many years before this episode, had anointed David with oil and prophesied that he would be the future king in Israel. So I wish I could tell you that the next thing that happens is that David becomes the king of all of Israel, and they live happily ever after. Uh, That's not at all what occurs. I'm really excited about this next section that we're going to move into, not just today, but in the coming months, looking at David's reign as the king in Israel. And, And I'm excited for a couple of reasons. Number one, this portion of David's life is filled with a lot of things. It's filled with failure, it's filled with sin, it's filled with betrayal, it's filled with family division, it's filled with with murder, it's filled with uh, sexual sin and sexual abuse, which is also sin. Uh, It's filled with a lot of stuff. It's also filled with grace and forgiveness and joy and victory and success, and leadership. And, the, and I say all of those things to say I'm excited about moving into a section like this because to me, this is where we live. We are living lives that have all of those different elements happening inside of them. So what we're about to study over the next couple of months is very human, very human. But in particular, I'm excited about this next smaller portion of what we're going to look at because David is going to become the king not over all of Israel, all 12 tribes, but over one tribe in particular, the tribe of Judah, for seven and a half years. Uh, He does not assume leadership of the whole nation, but just part of the nation. And what will follow is a seven and a half year period of time where people are making decisions, will David be my king or not. And the reason that I'm excited about that particular portion of David's life is because it reminds me of the biblical era that we are living in today. You see, Jesus has been anointed as the king, and one day he will be the king over everything and everyone, but we're living in a time where we have an individual choice to make. Will I allow Jesus Christ to be the Lord, the King of my life personally. And some of us need to make that decision for salvation, to come to know Jesus for the first time in our lives. But those of us who do know the Lord, wouldn't we all confess that we are still in that process of allowing Jesus Christ to progressively and increasingly be the King in our lives. The second that we say Jesus is the Lord of everything in my life, the Holy Spirit will show us something that he is not yet king in. And, uh, and, and that is an area that the Lord is saying, I want to be the leader. I want to be the king in that area of your life. Okay, so I'm excited about this little section that we're heading into. So before I read from 2 Samuel chapter 2, would you turn to chapter 3, verse 1, and read this theme for the whole chapter that we're heading into together with me. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. That's going to kind of be the theme verse 
for the chapter that we're going to look at today. There is, there is a, a, a kingdom, David's, that needs to grow stronger and stronger, and there's another kingdom, Saul's, that needs to grow weaker and weaker. And if you're a believer here today, you know that you need the kingdom of Jesus Christ to grow stronger and stronger in you, and the kingdom of self and flesh and the enemy to grow weaker and weaker inside of you. So as we go through this passage, I'm going to try to point out different things about Jesus' reign, how he does it, and how he looks for it in our lives. So let's start out in verse 1. Uh, through seven. I'll read the story uh, to you. You can follow along in your Bibles. It says in verse one, after this, David inquired of the Lord. This is after uh, Saul's death, David inquired of the Lord. And he asked the Lord, shall I go up to, shall I go up to, into any of the cities of Judah? Remember at this point, David is living outside of Israel in the Philistine city of Ziklag. And so he's asking God, God, do you want me to go back into Israel, particularly one of the cities in the tribe of Judah? And so the Lord said to him, verse 1, go up. David then said, to which shall I go up? You know, there's a lot of cities in Judah, so does God have a specific city in mind? And God replied, he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more extensively about David's family and his polygamy, but I'm not going to really touch it as much this week. And David, verse 3, brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there, verse 4, they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Again, not all Israel, but just over Judah. When they told David, verse 4, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, all of this is really fascinating. There's a few different cool things that happen in this little portion in David's life. First of all, there's a lot of grace here from the Lord. This man has been living in Philistine territory, and really he's been living for a while now out of fellowship with God. We saw a few weeks ago that he came to a place of catastrophe in his life where he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So his relationship with God has begun to be revitalized, but he goes to the Lord and he says, God, do you want me to go back into living in one of the towns of Judah, leave Philistine territory? And God says, yes. And then David says, which town? And God says, I want you to go to the town of Hebron. Now, the, the, the word Hebron is a Hebrew word that means communion 
or fellowship. I think this was God's way of saying, you've been in Ziklag out of fellowship with me, and I'm inviting you back into relationship with me. I'm inviting you back into fellowship with me. And some of you today might even be here, and this might be like day one of the Lord inviting you back into fellowship with himself. He's calling for you. He desires you. He's trying to draw you. He wants to be the king of your life, and he's saying, hey, come here. We want to have communion and fellowship. I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. And so David then takes his men and he moves to Hebron. They bring all their wives and all of their children, and they kind of get settled in Hebron. And there, the citizens of Judah come, and they anoint David as the king, not of all Israel, like Samuel predicted, but only of the tribe of Judah. So he is a partial king. None of this surprises us at this point in David's life and story. Because the second that he was anointed to be the future king in Israel, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it was just struggle after struggle, after struggle, after struggle. So none of us are surprised when Saul finally dies and David is not immediately pronounced king of all of Israel. It's no surprise that this is going to take a little while. He's going to have to be patient to see God's plans and purposes and promises ultimately unfold in his life. How many of you know that you're going to need patience if you're going to see God work and unfold his plan and his purposes in your life. And so David is a living example of that. So the people of Judah, they anoint David as king. Then some people come to him. We read this. And they say, hey, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who rescued the body of Saul. Now, if you weren't here last week, that happened in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And what happened was Saul died in battle. The Philistines took his body, put his armor in one of their temples, and took his body, cut off his head, and put the body, uh, pinned it up against the wall of Beth Shon. And when the men of Jabesh-Gilead heard about it, they went in stealth and they took down the body of Saul and got his head, and they burnt his body, probably to disguise the marks of abuse that Saul had gone through from the Philistines, and then they took his bones, and they gave his bones as proper of a burial as they could. And so some people come to David, and they say, hey, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who did that thing for Saul. And David replies with such grace and such dignity. You know, he sends messengers to them. He says, look, the Lord bless you for what you've done. I am going to be very kind to you for this thing that you have done. And then he says, hey, by the way, now you know, of course, Saul, your Lord is dead. He was, he was your Lord. He was your master. But just so you know, the citizens of Judah have anointed me to be king over them. All of this to me communicates that this man, David, he is so gentle about the way in which he is going to go about assuming the throne in Israel. There was no celebration. He had no like pump up, walk up song, you know, saying like, I'm the man now. You know, Saul is finally dead. I'm king. You know, I've been kind of concealing this for the last decade or so, but the prophet Samuel, one of the greatest prophets we ever had, he anointed me. He chose me over all my other brothers. I'm the man. I'm the king. No, he didn't do that. He just said, look, if you want me to be your king, I'll be your king. He gently, kindly 
reached out to the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead, reached out to the citizens of Judah, and said, if you'll have me, in effect, I will be your Lord. I will be your king. The reason I'm making a big fuss about this attitude of David is because oftentimes in David's life, not all the time, but oftentimes in David's life, he is an excellent foreshadowing and picture of Jesus Christ. And this, to me, is one of those moments in David's life. You see, later on in the book of 2 Samuel, we'll learn that God will make a promise to David that one day one of his descendants will be the Christ, will be the Messiah. So Jesus, in his humanity, is a relative of King David. And there are times where David beautifully shows us the spirit, the attitude, the mindset of Christ. And I think this is one of those beautiful things. Because Jesus Christ will not force anyone to follow after him. He wants all to know him. He wants all to receive him. He wants all to be saved. This is the will and the stated desire of God. But he will gently pursue your life. Jesus will say things like this to you. Come to me, Matthew 11, verse 28. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is that? That is Jesus making an invitation to humanity. He's saying, come to me, pursue me, receive me, let me be a part of your life. There came a time in Jesus' life, John records it, it happened in Jerusalem, and John usually is the biblical author or gospel writer who records the things that Jesus did in Jerusalem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke usually record things Jesus did in and around the region of Galilee. But John records a lot of things that Jesus did in Jerusalem. And one time, Jesus was there with his disciples during a festival called the Feast of Booths. You see, Israel had this thing where each year they had various festivals, and one of them was this Feast of Booths. And it was a way for them to remember, to commemorate, when God provided for them when they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, some people call it the Feast of Tabernacles. And what they would do is they would take these uh, booths or these tents, and they would build them, and they would live in them, actually, for a week. And they would do all these different things throughout the week to commemorate that time when God took care of them. So they had different things pointing out that God fed them with manna. They had different things pointing out that God sustained and nourished them with the meat, with the quail. And they had different things to commemorate that God had miraculously provided water for them when they were thirsty. And one of the things they did at the end of this feast is they would take some water in a big pitcher from the pool of Siloam. And they would bring it to the temple at the time of the morning sacrifice on the last day of the feast. And they would pour out the water along with the other drink offerings that were normal every day in the morning offering time before God. And they would pour it out and it was a way for them to celebrate that God had at different times given them water when they were in the wilderness. One time God turned water that was bitter into sweet water and another time God brought water from a rock and let it flow miraculously uh, for his people. And so they would commemorate that as they poured out this water. God, thank you for quenching our thirst. Listen to this from John 7, verse 37. It says, On the last day of that feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers 
of living water. Now listen, only Jesus Christ can say something like that at a time like that. They pour out the water saying, God, thank you for quenching our thirst historically. And Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty. You see, Jesus knows that there's a thirst way beyond the physical realm in the spiritual and the emotional realm. And so he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If I ever say something like that in reference to myself, run away. No one else can say this. No one else can say, come to me, come to me and drink, but Jesus can. He's making that invitation into every one of our lives. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Are you dry? Come to me and drink. He gently invites us to follow after him. Now, the story in David's life goes on in verse 8. Let's read it again, the next little episode. It says, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So no commas in there at all. I'm like, where are the commas? That's a lot of places, right? You know, when, they, when David became king, it was the citizens of Judah. Ishbosheth gets Gilead, the Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, verse 10, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Okay, so now we focus here for a moment on this character named Abner and another character named Ishbosheth. Right now, Abner was King Saul's nephew. Uh, his, his Saul's uncle was a guy named Ner, and uh, Abner was his son. And so uh, Abner was uh, Saul's nephew, and he commanded Saul's army. At this point, he's an older guy. He's been around for a while because Saul's reign was, for, was about 40 years in length. And so uh, he's a veteran of war. And when he notices that Saul is dead, he does something very interesting. Rather than move over and submit to David's leadership, he takes Saul's only living son and he goes into a territory. It's called the Mahanaim. It's a, it's a place beyond the reach of David and his men and Judah and beyond the reach of the Philistines where he could try to get some semblance of an Israelite kingdom established under Ishbosheth's reign. Now, don't be too impressed with Ishbosheth. He's actually more like a puppet for Abner to be able to use. In fact, this last week, I was sitting with my daughters, and I was, we were doing a little morning uh, Devo time in their Action Bible, and I was telling my two younger ones uh, the different stories that were there. We're going through Acts right now. But I started telling them, I said, yeah, this Sunday I've got this story I'm doing in the life of David, and there's this guy named Ishbosheth and Abner. And my youngest daughter, June, she's like, ugh, Ishbosheth. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you know about Ishbosheth. She, and this was the way she, I think she described him this way. She said, yeah, he's super weaky. And I was like, why? What, what's, why is he weaky? And she said, because Abner just controlled him. And that's the idea. Abner 
controlled Ishbosheth. Abner just told Ishbosheth what to do, what to say, where to go, all that kind of stuff. I was like, oh, I was still researching that. But uh, <laughs> glad you know. But here's what I want to think about. Okay, bear with me for a second as we get into this guy Ishbosheth and his name. Ish is a Hebrew word that means man. Besheth means shame. So literally his name means man of shame. All right, you're like, man, who would name their kid man of shame? That's terrible. Well, you're right for thinking that way. That actually wasn't his given name. When you read First and Second Chronicles, whenever he is referred to, he's not referred to as Ishbosheth. He's referred to as Ish Baal. Ish Baal. So man of Baal. Now that makes some of us cringe because we've read the Old Testament and we know that one of the principal false gods that the people of Israel often submitted to was a false god named Baal. And so it makes us cringe to think of Saul naming his son man of Baal. But probably when Saul did it, he wasn't intending my son is going to be a worshiper of this false god named Baal because the word Baal just literally uh, means Lord or Master. So really, you could actually describe your child as a person, a man, a, or a woman of the Lord or with a master by naming him Ish-Baal. And maybe you're saying to yourself, I don't know if I buy that because Saul wasn't always all that godly. He did have a semblance of godliness. He did have a walk with the Lord. But here's a guy who you probably are super convinced of, Jonathan. Jonathan loved the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he had a son that he named Merib-Baal. And uh, the, the, actually, the writers of First and Second Samuel shifted his name to Mephibosheth in replacing uh, Baal with the word for shame. And this happens a few different times, also about Gib, uh, Gideon in the book of First and Second Samuel. His story in the book of Judges, he receives a name Jerob Baal, but they changed the Baal to uh, Bosheth in First and Second Samuel. All right, so I'm just, you with me? Okay. You feel that? All right. You're like, wow, great point. Okay. So these biblical writers, they're thinking about Ishbosheth, man of shame. David's name means beloved. What you have here are two kings opposed to each other. One is beloved, one is the man of shame. And the reason I'm pointing all that out is because in this process that we're in in life, where Jesus Christ is wanting to more and more be the king of our lives, we have to recognize, not only number one, will he pursue us gently and invite us gently to allow him to be the king of our lives, but we must understand, number two, that there is a competitor for the throne. And the competitor quite often comes in the form of shameful things. Shameful things that want to take the throne of our hearts so that Jesus Christ cannot be in his proper place in our lives. Some of these are easy for us to imagine. We might think of the categories like the world, the flesh, and the devil, constant foes of the believer, the child of God. We might also think of the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life and put them in that category of kings or things of shame that would compete with Jesus Christ for lordship in our lives. A few summers ago, 
on Wednesday nights, we went through a series where we were looking at the statement of Jesus that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as we were going through that, we were thinking about competitors. Each week, we set our minds upon a different competitor for the love that should be directed towards God that sometimes steals our love away from God. We looked at things like pleasure. We started with the book of Ecclesiastes and looked at the way that Solomon pursued pleasure. He, he, he went after it. He said, I took all my money at my disposal and I went after partying and music and festivals and drunkenness and building things and acquiring things and accumulating stuff. I had no, there was no limit. There was nothing I set my heart or my mind upon that I said no to. I said yes to everything. And at the end of it, it was vanity. It could not satisfy my heart. We looked at the tendency of humanity to worship at the altar of sex or sexuality, taking something that God has created for the blessing of humanity, for the blessing of a married couple, and for the flourishing of humanity here on earth, and taking it from being a good thing into worshiping it as a God thing. And it can replace the, the, and, and sit on the throne of our hearts in place of Jesus. We looked at the tendency of human beings to worship the body, physique, beauty, outward appearance, and to worship a, a thing that we know will decay, and that when we're in glory, will be eternal at that point, but we want it to be eternal now. Our tendency, we looked at to worship money, possessions, things, belongings, relationships even, even relationships that God has given to us that we then can sometimes exalt into a place that they cannot handle. We even looked at how sometimes we will worship the children that God has blessed some of us to raise in life. They're gifts from the Lord, to be sure, but they're not for us to worship. They cannot handle that kind of idolatry. Or even, we looked at, our tendency to worship accomplishments in life, our successes in life, the things that we do. So we have to be ready. Jesus has challengers to his throne, challengers to his reign, and I think that's beautifully pictured for us here in Ishbosheth, taking some of the kingdom for himself. Now let's go on in the story and look at what happens in verse 12 and following. The story gets a little interesting at this point. We're basically going to be reading till the end of the chapter about various parts of battle and war that the people of Israel went through together. These two kingdoms, Ishbosheth and David, battling against one another. So it says in verse 12, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So they, they got their forces together at Gibeon. And in order to have a conversation without starting a war or a battle, they found this pool, the pool of Gibeon. And Joab, the commander, sat on one side, David's commander, and Abner, uh, Ishbosheth's commander, sat on the other side. And they're having this conversation across the water. And Abner said, verse 14, this is Abner's idea, he said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. 
Then they arose and passed over by number. Twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. So twelve from each side. And each, verse 16, caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. So it was a tie. (laughs) I've been waiting all week to say that. You guys didn't even laugh. I think we have to get out of our head that it was some kind of weird, like, all-in-one shot. The, the thing that's said next is that the place was called Helkath Hazarim, place of daggers. That might indicate that they normally didn't fight with daggers. And you can imagine these 12 guys on each side going to war with each other. They're all cut. They're still fighting. But then even after they've killed, they die because they're bleeding. And so everybody dies. It's an ugly scene. But then, verse 17, it says, And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. All right, it's a really interesting scene, an interesting little part of the battle uh, that's talked about. We're going to get more details about this day of war in a moment. But it begins like this, 12 on 12, daggers, it's ugly, brothers killing each other. You know, these these are people that are all part of the nation of Israel. They shouldn't be doing this to each other, but it's what happens. They die. And we get the note that the battle continued even after the, the 24 died. It was very fierce that day, verse 17. And the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So the, the thing that I want to point out here is that this was one day of war. This was one day of fighting. Uh, it would precipitate a lot of days of war, a lot of days of struggle, like it says earlier, David reigned over Judah for seven and a half years. Ishbosheth reigned over Israel for two years. It's tough to figure out the chronology of that exactly or specifically. Some people think Ishbosheth reigned at the end, two years at the end of David's seven and a half. Some people think two years at the beginning of David's seven and a half. And some people think that he struggled to form a coalition for five and a half years. And then finally, at the very end, had two years where Everybody in Israel was on Ishbosheth's side, and that this was part of the beginning of that struggle, meaning that Ishbosheth actually had more like seven and a half years, like David did. But this is one day of years of struggle. This is one day. And the reason I'm pointing that out is because the Christian life is a very daily experience. There are things that we do weekly, like what we're encountering right here and experiencing right here. Every week we get together and we gather together. Uh, There are things that we do perhaps monthly or annually, but it's every single day that there is a struggle and there is a battle for supremacy within our hearts. Every single day there is a fight. And what I wanted to say here is that Jesus Christ will fight little by little, day by day, for supremacy in your heart. Did you know that the Holy Spirit has a goal for you? Let me read to you one of the goals the Holy Spirit has from Romans chapter 8, verse 4. It says this, that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us. Now, what that's saying is that before you came to Christ, you could not fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. That's why Jesus came. He fulfilled it. He died on the cross. We learn that there's a righteousness that is apart from the law, the keeping of the law in Jesus. So we could not do it. Jesus did it. He was innocent. We believe in him, and he deposits into our account his righteousness. But once that happens in your life, once you're born again, the Holy Spirit of God has a goal, a desire, to help you actually be able to be the thing that you could not be before Christ came into your life. You could not fulfill the law before. You could not obey God before. But now the Spirit has a goal of fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law inside of you. But he is very patient in that process. If you've been around for a while, you know that one of my life verses, one of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 3.18, where we learn that we are transformed into the image of Jesus as we walk with him from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. That, that phrase, glory to glory, indicates a process, a process that sometimes is very daily, very slow. My, my family and I, we like watching uh, baking shows, cooking shows. Anybody, you guys feel that? You know, it's just, it's a lot of fun. You know, you're, if you, it's, it's the worst if you're trying to watch what you eat, you know, kind of thing, but you're sitting there just getting hungry. But we like watching different baking shows. And we found one recently where all of the bakers, it's a baking show, they're, they're all fairly accomplished. I think most of them were actually already professionals. So the stuff they're making is just incredible. And there's this one character, one guy on it that we really love. And he's an, an Italian guy. English is his second language. And uh, he speaks English really well, but he's got a thick Italian accent. And every once in a while, he says something that he's, he's trying to say a phrase that we say, uh, but he, he says it wrong, you know. And, uh, and he said this phrase, he was trying to say slowly but surely, and instead he said slowly but slowly. And uh, so I've been walking around the house the last week or so saying slowly but slowly, you know, slowly but slowly. It was just, I loved it, you know. That's the Lord. The Lord is going to work slowly but surely, slowly, but slowly in our lives. He is looking to progressively shape and change. He'll take day after day after day to conform us into the image of Christ. But what must we do? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that we must know that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must believe that. You must reckon that to be positionally true in your life. Even if it isn't the experience of your life to be dead to sin and alive to God, you must believe that it is so because you are tied to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So your life is bound up in him. And Jesus is dead to sin. And Jesus is alive to God. So even if you wake up in the morning and you feel that God is far away and that you are very alive to sin, you must consider and believe that you actually are tied together with Jesus in the sight of God, and that you are actually dead to sin, yet very much alive to God. So you must believe that, but then Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 6 that you must not take your body parts, 
your body, you, your members, your body parts, and present them as instruments to sin for unrighteousness, but you must present your body to God uh, and your members, your body parts as instruments to God for righteousness. And as you do, here's what happens. He transforms you. He meets you in that moment. That's part of what you're doing right here. I'm sure that for some of you, waking up on Sunday morning, you know, the alarm clock goes off. And for, for some of you, it might be the only day of the week that you get a little extra sleep when the morning comes. For some of you, you know, you're packing the kids up, you're, you know, getting in the minivan, you're trying to be in the spirit, but everybody's all, you know, stressed. We got to get there, you know, like kind of thing. And you're doing what you have to do. You have taken your body. That's what you've done. You've taken your body and you're trying to in one small way, present it to God, right? That's what you're doing. You're taking your body and presenting it to God. We do not have a bodiless religion. We, we, we are spirit, soul, and body, and this body is included in that obedience to God. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit transforms our lives, all right? So Jesus will fight little by little and day by day. All right, let's close by reading the rest of the chapter it says in verse 18, and the three sons of Zariah were there, <clears throat> Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Uh, these were David's nephews, if, in case you didn't remember that. Zariah is his sister. And so he probably grew up with these guys. Now Asahel was swift of foot as a wild gazelle. I love that description. So poetic, so beautiful. And, and Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned, listen to this phrase, neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him, verse 20, and said, is it you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? In other words, stop pursuing me. I don't want to hurt you. And I don't want to have to deal with Joab. But, verse 23, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab, verse 24, and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gaia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab, verse 28, blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Again, that's the place where they had established their version of the kingdom. 
Joab, verse 30, returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. So 20 in total were lost from David's army. But, verse 31, the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Okay, so this is the kind of the end of this particular episode or this particular battle. Uh, you know, it, it kind of ends with these two commanders, maybe even on two separate hills, uh, speaking to each other and Abner appealing to Joab and saying, look, we shouldn't be doing this. We're brothers. And how long are you going to do this? And so when, when he finally said that, it was kind of a little bit of a, a surrender, you know, leave us alone. And so Joab said, okay, that's fine. And they all went home. Uh, many more died from Ishbosheth's kingdom than David's uh, side and kingdom, uh, but that was the battle and it was over. But, but kind of what's mentioned leading up to the end of the battle is the death of David's nephew, Asahel. Uh, he's very fast, the Bible says. He's swift of foot like a gazelle, you know, and so, so he's very fast. And apparently, as the battle was unfolding and everybody's, you know, fleeing and running away, uh, Asahel locked in on Abner, and he just began pursuing him. He began running after him. In my mind's eye, at least, this is something where he sees Abner very far away. He sees him up on some hill, and he just starts chasing, tracking him down. And slowly but slowly but slowly, he's 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 pursuing him. He, he gets close to him, and finally Abner he turns around. Abner's a little older at this stage in his life. He can't run like Asahel. Apparently nobody can, except the gazelles. I mean, he's just a fast man. And so he shouts, he turns around, he's like, Is that you, Asahel? You know, there's only one guy that I know that can move like that. Is that you, Asahel? And Asahel says, It's me. It's yeah, it's me. And he pleads with him, Abner does. He says, please, turn around. I, I, don't, I don't want to have to do anything harmful to you, but he doesn't turn around. And he says, he says, please, turn around. I don't want to have to strike you and deal with your brother, Joab. And he's a man of war. I don't want to have to deal with him. Please, turn around. He pleads with him a couple different times. Asahel will not listen. And he comes up upon Abner no weapon is mentioned in Asahel's hand. He's not able to fight against Abner. He's a seasoned warrior. He's been around for many years. He knows what he's doing with a weapon. And so Abner turns and he just strikes Asahel with the butt of his spear. Some people think that Abner wasn't even trying to kill Asahel. He didn't turn his spear around to use the pointed edge, but the, the butt of his spear, but he, the, he hit his stomach. And, and Asahel is moving so quickly with that gazelle-like speed, and all of that unfortunately meant that the butt of the spear went through his back and he died. What are we to do with a story like that? What is that meaning to us? How does that speak? How does that minister to our hearts? Well, if we could just think about it for a second, Asahel's speed was a gift from God. God had deposited that into this man's life. He had made him, unlike other human beings, he had given him an ability to run faster than the, everybody else in Israel. 
But something seems to have happened in Asahel's mind. Rather than trusting God who had given him the gift, he seems to have begun to trust himself. Time and time again, he's told to turn aside, turn aside, turn aside. But somehow he believes, I can get this guy and get, I think he's thinking to himself, glory for myself. I will be the man to kill Abner. I will be the man to take Abner's life. I will get some glory for myself. And it led to his downfall. It led to his undoing. The reason I'm mentioning this is because here we are today talking about Jesus being the king of our lives. I think something that we need to understand in this process is that Jesus Christ will not, does not want to use our self-sufficiency in the process of him becoming the king in our lives and hearts. You cannot say to yourself, I will sanctify myself. I will do this myself. I will make myself godly. No, you must turn to the Lord. You might remember in the book of Genesis that there was a story of the people of the earth who decided to build for themselves a tower and form one community, ignoring the command of God to spread throughout the earth and multiply. And this is what they said. They said, Genesis 11, verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves. You see, as long as that is the Spirit, as long as that is what's going on inside of your mind, Jesus Christ cannot use it. He'll give you gifts. He'll give you talents. And He'll give you abilities. But you must not trust them. You must trust in the Lord who has given them into your life. You see, Jesus gives gifts, spiritual ones and natural ones, to His people. But our trust must be in Him. You guys remember Peter? Remember what Peter said to Jesus? He said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Peter actually ready to go to prison and to death with Jesus? No, not at that time. At that point when he said it, he was trusting in himself. Lord, even if all of them deny you, I will not deny you. But let me ask you a question. Did Peter go to prison? and to death for Jesus Christ. Yes, he did. Absolutely he did. But he would only be able to do it once the Lord had humbled him and allowed him to be in this place where he trusted God rather than his own strength. And once he was trusting in the Lord, the Lord was able to work with that. You see, as long as we've got this pride thing banging around in our minds and banging around in our hearts, the Lord is limited. But when we're humble before the Lord, when we come to the Lord and say, God, I need your help, I need your strength, I need your ability, I need you, therefore I will read your word, therefore I will pray, therefore I will be in the house of God, I will be about these things because I need your help. As long as that is the attitude, man, those are the ingredients that God can work with. So again, the Lord, he wants to increase inside of you. There's some of the ways that he'll do that in our hearts, and in our lives. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.